From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Joseph Backel in for Tony today. Tony is getting away some in August for a much-deserved break, and so it is my pleasure to be with you here on Washington Watch. A reminder that you can find this and every program at TonyPerkins.com. encourage you to do that. Also, you can get the Stand Firm app at Google Play as well as the uh, iTunes, Apple Apple Store to get the the um, the app stand firm app so you can stay connected with everything happening here at FRC. Uh, Today, though it is August and though we would prefer that Congress was taking a break, they are in fact uh, in town doing what they do, talking in large part about infrastructure. And we're gonna discuss the infrastructure bill today among other things, uh, we are also going to talk to Mike Huckabee, Governor Mike Huckabee. What does he think of the plummeting approval ratings that President Biden has experienced in the last couple months? We'll discuss with him what is causing those. Also, we will talk about Catherine Lehman. Who is Catherine Lehman, Biden's nominee to the Civil Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. What do you need to know about her? That's all coming up in the program today. But first, to start off, last month, the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission held a hearing to examine the state of religious freedom around the world. And among those who were called as witnesses was Bob Fu, founder and president of China Aid and senior fellow for international religious freedom here at FRC. He showed how religious oppression in China continues to increase with each passing year since 2017, and how Chinese Communist Party's war on religion will continue to grow unless the world intervenes. In the persecution against the Christian communities, for example, the CCP intends not only to put Christianity or Christian faith under its full control of its uh, evil government, but also with the intention even to wipe out those uh, the genuine faiths and the, fo- the followers of uh, Christian faith. With me now, is one member of Congress who is working to intervene on behalf of persecuted Christians in China. Congresswoman woman Vicki Hartzler, who serves as a commissioner on the Congressional Executive Committee on China, as well as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And she represents the 4th Congressional District of Missouri. Congresswoman Hartzler, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Good to be here, Joseph. Well, we're glad to have you, and you have introduced the Combating the Persecution of Christians in China Act. Tell us what the details of that are and what inspired you to do this. Well, I have long said that if there's something that I could do as a member of Congress to help our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, then I want to do everything possible. And I've had a special heart for the Christians in China for years Uh, Over 20 years ago, when I was a state representative, I had the opportunity to go there. And every meeting that I held with the Chinese, I asked the questions about religious freedom and what they were doing, because we know this has been a long-running battle that they have targeted our brothers and sisters in faith in China with horrific uh, persecution, and it is getting much, much worse. Under President Xi Jinping, we are seeing the destruction of hundreds of churches. 
they are requiring the replacing of the pictures of Jesus in churches with the pictures of President Xi Jinping. They are rewriting the Bible to make it align with the philosophy of communist uh, Chinese party. Uh, and of course, they are detaining at an increasing rate Christians and torturing them and throwing them in prison. And we in America who are people of faith need to stand up and to speak out in support of them. And this bill combating the persecution of Christians in China Act calls on our State Department of State to do more and to sanction these individuals that we know are responsible for arresting some of these Christians and torturing them. Uh, it calls on the State Department to, as part of every trade negotiation, to have religious liberty as a condition, a part of that trade deal, not just dealing with agriculture or, or other commodities or intellectual property. Let's negotiate how you treat your fellow citizens. And if you're going to put people in uh, prison because of their faith, then maybe we don't need to be trading with you. Um, and this needs to be on the table of discussion. It also calls on our State Department to every two years to have a ministerial uh, worldwide ministerial that looks at religious liberties around the world and to shine a light on this issue. So there's more that our State Department could be doing, and that's what my bill uh, calls for it to do. Well, it is an important step, and we thank you for doing so. In just raising awareness of this issue, there have been a lot of conversations about the way the Chinese government is also treating the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, they have a, a long list of human rights abuses. Um, is this bill, in in specifically protecting Christians, is it meant to exclude others? Why did we just? Why did you in this legislation say, "I want to help the Christians in China"? Well, there are many bills that have been introduced to address and support the Uyghur Muslims. In fact, I've introduced a bill a few weeks ago called the, called the SOS Act, which stands for a Stop Oppressive Sterilizations Act, because as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said last year, uh, before he left office, he and the United States government designated Chinese as committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. And so in Congress, we have passed a couple of major pieces of legislation in support of them. And that has been a, a very uh, broad focus for Congress. But I don't want us to forget the Christians also that have been persecuted, as I said, for years. And the pressure is ramping up on them as well. And so that's why I felt like I wanted to do this bill, just focusing on them, because there's several other bills focusing on the Uyghur Muslims. Yesterday on the program, we talked about uh, what's happening in Nigeria and uh, 17 Christians a day uh, being massacred there uh, since March of this year. Mm -hmm. And it, and the Trump administration, uh, Secretary Pompeo, former Secretary Pompeo, designated Nigeria as a country of particular concern. And, and your legislation calls for the State Department to identify China as a country of uh, particular concern. What is the significance of that? Well, it, it puts on the world stage uh, the fact that this country has problems and it, and it raises some implications as far as uh, trade and some economic uh, uh, transactions with them. But, you know, I think certainly they qualify. And just because they're a very large country that does a lot of economic business around the world, uh, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to them for their human rights abuses. And to that point, 
China has been a, a focus of conversation in the U.S. Uh, in the sports arena, particularly the NBA has received criticism uh, for its its unwillingness to condemn what's going on in China and what's perceived as as a cozy business relationship and really not wanting to threaten the market that China represents because it is such a big market. Do you think that Americans are finding it difficult, those with a political or an economic interest in the country, are they finding it difficult to stand up to China? I think it is uh, a problem in that we have become so dependent on China in so many different ways. There is an economic incentive to just keep quiet, to just uh, sweep it under the rug, ignore it. And that's what happened for far too long until President Trump came in office and he said, no more, we're going to shine a light on this. And it was needed. It's long, long overdue. Uh, because these things matter. Our treatment of our fellow men and, and women around the world matters. And America is still the beacon of freedom. We're still the champion for religious uh, mm -hmm. liberties. And if we don't speak out, then who will? What's your perception of how the Biden administration is handling China, specifically when it comes to human rights abuses? Well, they're being very, very quiet. Uh, they're not raising any awareness that I'm aware of, uh, they're being very uh, docile, and this is not good because certainly President Xi Jinping uh, is very strong. He can he can smell weakness, and I think it's just further emboldened him. And as a member of the Armed Services Committee, I'm very concerned about the military buildup that China has been doing. I've produced a four-part series on my official website and go to hartzler.house.gov where you can see the threats from China. We have four videos covering the military threat, the economic threat, the malign influence threat, as well as the human rights abuses. And I want everyone in America to know what is going on, but they are becoming increasingly aggressive militarily, not only against our ally Taiwan, but in the uh, South China Sea. And in that area, they're just being emboldened. Um, and we have to be prepared to meet any threat, and certainly they respect strength, peace through strength. We need to deter any aggression by building up our military, being strong, and certainly not being quiet when they uh, hurt or damage uh, our fellow man by imprisoning them or torturing them, and certainly if they're doing this because of their, their faith. Now, Congresswoman, we have just a couple moments left, but I want to change topics with you if I can. You wrote an op-ed for Fox News this week uh, about critical race theory, uh, speaking as a former uh, school teacher yourself. What are your concerns about what you're seeing happen in the public school system? Well, it's just uh, shocking to me, the thought that we would teach our kids that we are a racist nation and that their destiny is determined by their skin color and that they should feel embarrassed for who they are or, or acts of the past or guilty or ashamed. It is just abominable. As I say, we should be teaching the ABCs, not CRT. Uh, we need to be focusing on the academics. Uh, it's sad that some of our scores compared to other countries are lagging behind in the areas of science and reading and math. And I think that's because too much of the political correctness has creeped into our schools and we're forcing our teachers to teach about things that are just politically correct or deal with the social, emotional or mental development of our children. And that is not the role of school. Uh, the school should be teaching the academics as well as that America is the greatest country in this world. 
We are not perfect, but we are always moving towards that more perfect union. And we are still the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that is what our kids should be taught, not indoctrinated with this poisonous CRT agenda. Now, it seems that the conversation around critical race theory is very divisive in, in social media and kind of the general on, on, on Main Street in America. Do you perceive it to be uh, creating division in Washington, D.C. as well and in Congress? Well, it, it does. All of the focus on race is very di divisive, whether it is just in society in general or whether it's in um, uh, schools or whether it's in the military. And I introduced a bill last week as no CRT in to our Military Kids Act because there's uh, 70 different schools that the Department of Defense is in charge of where we teach our military children on military bases all over the world. And I want to make sure CRT is not being taught to our the children of our men and women in uniform who are potentially giving their lives uh, for their country. Uh, so it has no place. We need to be focusing on the fact that we have a diverse background. E pluribus unum is our uh, traditional model. Out of many, one. That is the strength of America, that we come from many different backgrounds, many different countries. But when we come here, we become Americans. And as Americans, we are strong, we are proud, you, you, we are united. But this uh, CRT uh, focus is dividing us. And I don't think that's good for us now or for our future as a country. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, couldn't say it better myself. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate your service to all of us. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. And, and it is true. I've, I've heard it said about the, the CRT discussion. Perhaps it's not dividing us. Perhaps it's actually uniting us because we are united in our opposition to, uh, to it. Uh, one can hope. Coming up after the break, uh, we are going to talk to Governor Huckabee about Biden's plummeting approval ratings. Stay with us. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in His image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. 
The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, Tony, so glad that you are with us today. A Harvard Caps-Harris poll survey released yesterday showed that President Biden's approval rating dropped to 52%. And this is down 10 points from where he was in June when his approval rating was at 62%. Also yesterday, preliminary data showed last month's number of encounters and arrests at the southern border as being the highest since at least 2000. Federal immigration officials reportedly encountered more than 205,000 migrants attempting to enter the U.S. from Mexico last month. Of those, 37,400 got away, they estimate, crossing successfully and illegally into America. What can we draw from these latest figures? Is the immigration issue connected to Biden's uh, plummeting approval ratings, or is it something else? Joining me now to talk about all this and more is former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, host of TBN's Huckabee which celebrated its 200th episode over the past weekend. Governor Huckabee, welcome to Washington Watch, and congrats on your show's milestones. Well, thank you very much. We're pretty excited about hitting 200 shows, uh, almost four years now, and uh, it's a a big milestone for us, and the show continues to grow, and we're having the time of our lives doing it, so uh, quite a celebration for us. And I speak for many when I say that we are having the time of our lives uh, watching it with you. So thank you for doing it. And and I would love your thoughts on uh, what is it that President Biden is experiencing right now? I I think it's the biggest disaster that I've seen in a president's administration since Jimmy Carter. Uh, I have to believe that every night Jimmy Carter gets on his knees and says, thank you, God, I'm no longer considered the worst president in American history. And I say that not just from a partisan standpoint. I'm sure there are people who say, yeah, but uh, you're, you're a partisan. Well, okay, I admit that I'm a Republican and I'm a conservative. But this is a president who has been unable to show leadership, whether it's at the border, in the Middle East, dealing with Iran, dealing with China, dealing with the economy, 
keeping his promises on getting the vaccine into the uh, arms of uh, a million Americans a day and hitting our goal of 70 percent by July 4th. We just keep going through failure after failure. But it's also the hubris of an administration where he fails to ever say, hmm, maybe my policies aren't working that well. And I just wish that there would be a little bit more humility and honesty and a little less hubris from the White House. Well, there seemed to be a, a convergence of challenges that he's facing, and every every president, of course, faces challenges. Um, COVID seems to be back on the scene. A majority of Americans now seem to think, think or a plurality, 45% compared to 40, think it's getting worse rather than better. Do you think that's part of that? Is it more immigration? What do you think is his biggest challenge right now in the public's mind? I, I think there are factors the negative numbers for Joe Biden. And certainly uh, the border situation is one of them. But it ties, quite frankly, uh, very much with what's happening with COVID. Uh, If it's necessary that even vaccinated people like myself have to wear a mask, but if I'm an illegal immigrant, I'm not even tested and I'm not asked to wear a mask, then people quit believing the government that it's that big of an issue. Because if it were really an issue as on fire, Uh, as perhaps it really is, then the Biden administration would close the border and say, we can't bring people in who haven't been tested and who could, in fact, be infecting so many Americans with COVID. We just can't do that. So we're closing the border and no more people are going to be allowed in. Uh, It would be a pushback to the cartels. But so far, Joe Biden hadn't pushed back to the cartels. All he's done is send Kamala Harris to El Paso to make uh, a little bit of a publicity move. She goes to the one place on the entire southern border that probably uh, is the least penetrable due to the fact that there is heavy security and a strong wall. And she pretends that, yeah, things are, are really getting better. But the truth is, from every person who has been in Del Rio and McAllen and the rest of the border, they will tell you things are not better. They're the worst they've ever been. You make an interesting point uh, because uh, COVID, again, is emerging, and, and, and we're seeing, at least in, in the city of New York, Mayor de Blasio saying we're not got, now going to have require passports there. And there's supposed to be this heightened concern about, uh, about COVID, yet the border is as loose as it has ever been. Uh, do we think it's possible that they're more afraid of being called racist than they are of COVID? Well, they must be. Uh, And as bad as racism is, which I don't think it's racist to protect your borders, because you're not just protecting them from one color or ethnicity of people. You're protecting them from people who come from 160 different countries across the southern border because they know that the Biden administration isn't minding its business down there. So this is not racist. It's a matter of enforcing the laws that we have uh, chosen to have for our country. Now, we can change those laws. We can get rid of our borders. But until we do that, we ought to enforce them. And I feel so very sorry for the people who work for the Border Patrol, uh, the impossible jobs that we have tasked them with. Uh, We've turned them into babysitters and uh, basically wet nurses for unaccompanied children, which I think people forget uh, for an administration that claims to be so compassionate. Please tell me what's compassionate about seeing little children abused and exploited, brought across the border and abandoned, and young women, some as early as in, as young as 9 and 10 years old, brought into this country without their parents or supervision, and they're turned over to uh, 
uh, sex traders who use them, uh, frankly, for sex toys and to make money. Uh, it's disgusting. There's nothing compassionate about the exploitation of children and turning people uh, into uh, sex slaves for uh, the benefit of some very sick people. And, and that is a truth that needs to be spoken and heard over and over and over again. We really do need to understand the impact that this is making to individual lives. We are just about out of time here. One final question. Do you have any hope that it's going to get better on the border? Uh, not, not unless uh, the Democrats are shown the door in the next election cycle. That's the only way because they're so arrogant. They simply are unable to admit that it's a crisis. And it is a crisis by everyone's estimation except theirs. And frankly, there's no indication that they're going to say, we've got a mess down there, we ought to fix it. So there's one thing that will perhaps uh, maybe start making a change. And that's let's sweep the Democrats out of office in 2022. Let's get a president who's a conservative Republican in in 2024. And somebody that actually wants and believes that the right thing to do is to control our borders. That would be a big improvement. Governor Huckabee, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being with us. You bet. Stay with us after the break. We're going to talk about a nominee that you need to know about. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today while he gets some R&R. So glad that you have joined us today. President Biden has nominated former ACLU attorney Catherine Lehman to return for a second stint as the assistant secretary in the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights after having served in that role in the Obama administration. 
Lehman's nomination is problematic for several reasons. And with me now to go over some of them is Max Eden, Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Max, welcome to Washington Watch. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming uh, to enlighten people about something we really do need to know about. Um, most nominees to a position have uh, no track record in that particular position, not necessarily so with this nominee. Uh, what should we know about Catherine Lehman? Yeah, so the thing to know about Catherine Lehman is that in her last stint in the Obama administration, and almost certainly in her next uh, presumed stint with the Biden administration, she has taken civil rights law as a pretext to force school districts and colleges to adopt new progressive, liberal, leftist, what have you, kind of social doctrines and orthodoxies. Uh, the Office of Civil Rights, the federal civil rights apparatus, has a tremendous amount of power, and kind of properly so if it's fulfilling its mission of ensuring that the law as written is not being violated. But what she has done and what she almost certainly will do is pretend as though the law says something entirely else and then threaten to withhold funds from school districts and colleges unless they adopt her preferred policies on, for some examples, uh, the way to handle allegations of sexual assault on campus, discipline in the classroom, or transgender bathroom, locker room, affirmation in, in elementary schools. Well, we have been living in a gender theory madness so long that it may be difficult to remember a time in which we weren't living in that world. But in fact, as recently as 2016, this wasn't something that we were obsessing about. Um, but there was a dear colleague letter uh, from the Obama administration toward the end of his tenure uh, that he wrote to school districts, basically threatening them if they didn't embrace this. Was she behind that? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I would say she wrote it rather than he wrote it because her, her name was on it. <laughs> and uh, to your point about nobody expected it, I, I did talk to people who were in the department at the time who had basically said, we didn't know we were going to do this until, until we did it. And it's worth emphasizing, I think, for folks who have some idea of what the department did, what this letter did, to, to really know how deep it went, right? That the whole debate was around bathroom access, uh, which in a way, tapped into a certain sympathy, right? Uh, you, you envision a, a child who has a physical emergency. How's the child going to solve it? But under her leadership, the Office of Civil Rights investigated a case of one school district which had agreed to call a young boy by female pronouns, agreed to let her play female sports, agreed to let him uh, use the girl's bathroom. It simply stipulated that when he uses the girl's locker room, he should change behind a privacy curtain because, according to the school district, the young girls were uncomfortable being viewed biological, by a biological male in a state of undress or having to view a naked biological male. And under her leadership, OCR felt this concern was, to quote the letter, unavailing. So that is as, as far as her office has gone under this. But to your point, that was back in, in 2015, 2016. The goalposts have moved so far since, and I think parents... <laughs> Uh, might well be be wondering what's next. And it's possible she doesn't even know yet. Yeah. I understand she also has something of a shame list in her background. Is that something you can tell us about? Uh, you know, actually, that's something I, I can't. I focus much more on her, her time in the department than her, her work around it, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I, I do want to highlight Senator, uh, Senator Burr from North Carolina has described her track record as deeply troubling, if not outright 
disqualifying. Now, Biden, of course, ran as this centrist. He has in many ways governed not as a centrist. When it comes to Catherine Lehman, is, is her extreme social policy, is this a bug or is it a feature for the Biden administration? Oh, it's, it's certainly a feature. Um, and it is, I mean, she was really, I, I wrote this in, in a piece in the New York Post, I mean, she was probably during the Obama administration more responsible than any other single government official for the culture war offensives that were opened up, you know, across America, be it on gender relations at the higher ed level, race relations and school discipline and rule of law at the K-12 level or transgender uh, issues in schools and in society in general. I think she is a really rapidly far left ideologue who is almost certainly going to be confirmed and certainly going to be in a position where she can tell school districts across the country, unless you do what I want on whatever issue I decide, I have the power to investigate you and I have the power to potentially take away your funding unless you agree to do what it is that I say. And to that point, what is the status of her confirmation right now in the Senate? Um, I believe that they were, I'm actually not sure if the vote took place yet because I haven't checked the news this afternoon, but it was, she was set to be voted out of committee uh, today. There is no real expectation that there'll be any Democratic defectors. I think the best case scenario is that she will go in at a 50-50 vote, but I don't anticipate that this will mean that she'll go in hobbled. I think that uh, she knows, and if anything, her first hearing kind of confirmed that Republicans will be reluctant to question her aggressively when it comes to transgender issues and when it comes to race issues. One of the things I'm very concerned about, uh, maybe the thing I'm most concerned about, is that she absolutely has it in her power to use the Office of Civil Rights to basically require school districts to adopt various aspects of critical race theory. She can do that very easily. It's entirely consistent with her track record. And uh, nothing in her confirmation process has suggested that when she gets into office, that Republicans on the Senate and the House will be exercising the kind of oversight you'd want over her for that. Max Eden, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we are going to talk about how the Biden administration is making other benign issues pretty extreme as well. Right after. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. 
PrayVote Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray Vote Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. So glad that you are with us. The draft of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill was released late Sunday night. And while it will take time to go through and digest the 2,702 pages, it has already been criticized for including gender identity as a protected class. What else do we know about the legislation formerly called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act? Joining me now to talk about some of the problems with this bill is Mary Beth Waddell, Director of Federal Affairs with regard to Family and Religious Liberty here at Family Research Council. Mary Beth, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Joseph. Glad to be here with you. Well, we are glad to have you. Um, I think the first question I want to ask is, how in the world did an infrastructure bill uh, become a debate over gender identity? That is a great question, um, because gender identity and sexual orientation have nothing to do with infrastructure. When we think infrastructure, we think roads, bridges, ports, things of this nature, which is the large focus of the bill, from what I understand. But there's this section called digital equity, so making sure that there's equality in broadband that has a what we call a SOGI non-discrimination clause that elevates sexual orientation and gender identity to protected class status. And that's a big problem. Now, what are they allegedly trying to accomplish by inserting this language into the bill? Like if the proponents of the bill were here to talk about this, what would they be saying makes this necessary? That's a great question that... uh, Honestly, what we see this really doing is being a a Pandora's box to opening a host of problems. Um, We see this quite often where something that may look innocuous uh, is thrown into a legislation because it looks innocuous but actually has real ramifications. The uh, enforcement and judicial review sections of this non-discrimination clause are tied to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. 
which, as we know, it is the goal of the Equality Act to completely change all of our civil rights laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And we've seen what's happened with Bostock and, you know, the redefinition of sex when it comes to employment law and how that has grown like wildfire. And so if we begin to, on the outskirts of Title IX or Title VI, talk about sexual orientation and gender identity, that's opening Pandora's box. Uh, and Title VI is a large title that connects to all federal funds. So this really is just one piece, uh, or is it, and I'll, I'll ask you, is this just one smaller piece of the broader war on, on sex and gender culturally? Oh, absolutely. We've seen repeatedly how, oh, let's just request more data here or more data there. Or, oh, this is, you know, only in this one little siloed area. You know, this isn't going to have the ramifications that you think for women. This isn't going to have the ramifications that you think in all of these other areas, you know, for those who maybe have a religious belief and own a small business. But no, you're actually trying to get the camel under the nose of the tent so that you can get to those more broader sweeping things. It just looks innocuous. That that has been the game plan from day one. Now, the debate is happening on Capitol Hill right now, and, and FRC is trying to elevate this issue and make members of Congress aware of this, because, again, it's been a bipartisan bill, and you'd think that a, a bill about roads and bridges and trains could be uh, done in a bipartisan way, but because of this issue, it, it has become much more divisive than it otherwise might be, and, and we want it to be divisive because we want people to understand what's happening. But do do you get a sense that the concerns that FRC and others are raising on Capitol Hill are being heard by members of Congress? I do. Um, but certainly the, the drum needs to be beaten even louder. You know, we do have our allies who are who are thankful for us raising uh, the flag on this. And um, but others who, you know, those who support the bill have recently come out and said, we don't care what kind of amendments, what kind of changes we are dogged in our pursuit of making this happen. And that's a problem. Um, we actually have an alert um, that individuals can let their senators know um, that they do not support this language, that they don't support uh, this as being labeled infrastructure. And they can go to frcaction.org slash infrastructure to send an alert to their senator about their views on this. That, again, is frcaction.org slash infrastructure. And, and while you are... Uh listening to the program or watching the program today, we do hope that you will do that, frc.org, frcaction.org slash infrastructure, and follow the steps there to make sure that your voice is heard on this matter. Now, now, Mary Beth, uh, FRC Action has taken the step to score this particular vote. Uh, for those who are, it's kind of an inside baseball term, uh, for those who might not be familiar with what that means and why that's significant, uh, what, it, what does that represent to say that we're going to score a vote on this bill? That means that FRC believes that this is a very important issue and that it is worth taking a stand on and that we are going to hold account those senators who would support such a policy, um, that it's going to be reflected in our scorecard, that we let our constituents know, you know, how their member voted on, you know, a number of votes that would relate to life, family, religious freedom. And, and this is going to be one of those that we highlight for constituents as to how members vote. 
And, and that matters because ultimately uh, during the next election cycle, mm-hmm. uh, FRC will then give members a, a grade. And, and everybody yeah. is kind of familiar with whether it's FRC or the National Rifle Association or Greenpeace or whatever political action group. They give uh, members of Congress a grade or a score based on how they voted on the bills that matter most to them. And of course, uh, they have to determine what bills matter most to them. And so the purpose of saying uh, this bill is being scored is just to notify the members of Congress that their their um, their voters, their constituents, are going to be notified specifically about how their um, how their members of Congress voted on this bill, and and so that does make a difference. We hope, but we also hope uh, that um, that for voters that they will understand why this matters. And Mary Beth. Uh, is there really any realistic hope of stopping this bill if people reach out to the members of Congress? Is there something? Is there hope that this can be turned into just a, a regular old infrastructure bill rather than another piece of kind of the culture war? Well, we won't know unless we try. You know, I think that it's an uphill battle, but we welcome the uphill battles. You know, we we don't shy away. You know, Tony always talks about standing. You know, that's our verse here at FRC, that we are going to be the ones who are on the front lines, even if the battle seems hard and even if it's worth fighting for, even if um, you may not succeed in one or another case. Um, so who knows? We'll have to see. You know, if constituents let their senators know how they feel about this, that they do not believe that this is infrastructure, that there should not be this language uh, tied to roads, bridges, and things of that nature, um, their senators should listen to them. And, and Mary Beth, this is just now in the House. It would still have to go to the Senate. Isn't that correct? Uh, reverse. It's currently in the Senate and would have to go to the House. Okay, it's currently in the Senate and would have to go to the House. That's correct. Right. So either either way, it's not over. Uh, Absolutely Beth, not. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and, uh, and all your efforts on the Hill on behalf of all of us, uh, making sure that the public is aware of what's going on in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joseph. Now, this is not the only way, unfortunately, that this infrastructure bill has become controversial and part of the culture uh, war. And joining me now to talk about this is Connor Semmelsberger, who's the Director of Federal Affairs on Life and Human Dignity for the Family Research Council. Connor, welcome back to the program. Great to be on with you, Joseph. Well, we just covered how this became a discussion about gender identity How in the world is this connected to the abortion issue? Yeah, well, it dates back to spring of this year when Biden released his $4 trillion uh, economic plan. He had two parts, infrastructure, which is what you just heard about, and a second one called his American Families Plan. But coupled together, this was his version running on his platform to reshape America to build back better in his words. Well, it really isn't going to be building back better, at least for the issues that us social conservatives care about, because not only is the infrastructure bill now tied up with sexual orientation and gender identity, that second phase, that second piece, which the Senate is going to attempt to do through a process called budget reconciliation, where they only need a simple majority, 50 votes to pass, meaning they can pass any liberal priority they may want without a single Republican vote, is directly tied to this infrastructure vote that Republicans have jumped in the fray on. And that broader package, again, being proposed all the way back in April that Biden has pushed through his agenda, will include proposals that will redirect our taxpayer funds so that they can get around the Hyde Amendment and fund uh, abortions with our taxpayer money. Now, with, with, what 
how significant would that departure be from the way that uh, infrastructure and spending bills have been done in the past? It would be a major, major break in precedent. So the House just completed its annual spending appropriations, where they take all our taxpayer funds and dole it out to the individual agencies. Those are That's the spending that Congress must do every year to keep the lights on at the government. Um, and in those bills each year are things like the Hyde Amendment passed in 76, the Helms Amendment passed in 1973, which prohibit our taxpayer funds from going to abortions abroad and domestically here. The House just passed those bills over to the Senate and for the first time since those early 70s has not included those key provisions uh, that prohibit our taxpayer funding for abortion. So that's the first track. But now they've because they don't have the votes or we perceive that the Democrats won't have the votes to fully repeal those amendments in law. Uh, thankfully, because we think uh, key senators like Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Lisa Murkowski and uh, Susan Collins on the Appropriations Committee will be the key votes to keep those uh, amendments in place. But since they can't uh, repeal those longstanding policies that are so popular with American people, they're going to try to subvert those laws and redirect separate funds in this reconciliation bill to be able to, again, send our taxpayer dollars to abortion because they know that it is such an uphill battle to undo such a popular policy like the Hyde Amendment. Now, for those who may not uh, know exactly what the Hyde Amendment is, uh, tell us, what is it? Why is the Hyde Amendment import, important? And, and why is it particularly significant that President Biden would be the one uh, to uh, remove it from this legislation? Yeah, so this policy, um, really, these policies came to be right after the Roe v. Wade decision. First, in 1973, the same year Roe v. Wade was decided, Senator Jesse Helms from North Carolina passed the amendment in this annual spending bill to make sure our tax dollars didn't fund abortions overseas. So it was really great to protect foreign aid from funding abortions. But our domestic dollars here in the U.S. were still funding abortions. So three years later in 76, uh, Congressman uh, Henry Hyde from Illinois, Republican, uh, passed his version of what was the Helms Amendment, but to apply to our funding here in the U.S. And ever since that happened in the early 70s, with Democrats and Republicans coming together, these amendments passed with Democrat majorities and through the years have picked up bipartisan support from the likes of none other than Senator Joe Biden himself, a senator serving Delaware in the years he served in the U.S. Senate. And so these uh, uh, amendments have been included every single year since the early 70s uh, in these annual spending bills. And so this is the first time these bills have passed out of the House without, uh, without these key protections in place, which have been signed into law by every single president uh, since Gerald Ford uh, all the way back in the 70s. So this is truly uh, setting a new precedent. And Joe Biden has been a key supporter of these policies for so long. So for him to be the president that's asked for their removal and pushing other alternatives to get taxpayer funding for abortion really is just mind boggling. And I think that's an, a point worth dwelling on for a moment, because Joe Biden became the, the quote unquote moderate Joe Biden and developed that rep rep that reputation in, in large part because uh, he spent his entire career in the Senate supporting the Hyde Amendment, being this moderate on abortion, this Catholic, therefore moderate on abortion. But of course, a month before he was elected president, uh, he reversed his position and he promised to uh, revoke his support of the Hyde Amendment. That's why he's in the White House. So this just, it, it's 
it's one, it's evidence of why why elections matter, but it's also just politics at work. Uh, somebody who sold, literally sold out the Hyde Amendment so that he could get into the White House. And this is just essentially, it's the fulfillment of his campaign promise. Is that right? That's exactly right. You know, it's so funny. You read some of the constituent letters he would send back in the 90s um, and just saying how for pro-life members like himself, the one thing that was so important was to protect the conscience of the American taxpayer by stopping their dollars from going to abortion. That was the one thing he defended so often to his people back home in Delaware. And here he is being the one uh, that could see its demise, if not uh, really expand other uh, subsidies for abortion, whether that's through Obamacare, his predecessor while he was vice president, really started to break whittle away with this precedent um, and could really further that. And so, again, elections do have consequences. And as much as we're going to put up the strongest fight we can to save Hyde, to continue to stop further taxpayer funding for abortion through these other means, reconciliation and the like, uh, votes really do matter. And uh, when push comes to shove, if there's 50 Democrats that line up in support of this uh, broader three and a half trillion dollar tax, uh, tax boondoggle that's run by Bernie Sanders, uh, there's little that the minority in the Senate can do. And so that's why it's so important uh, that you vote your values when it comes time for that. And, and Connor, what can people do right now if they want to save Hyde? Yeah, so you can go to our action campaign at frcaction.org slash save Hyde to let your senator know that these uh, bills that the House passed over without the Hyde Amendment, without the Helms Amendment, that would allow your taxpayer dollars to go to abortion. You need to let your senators know now that it is in their hands to save these long-storied, popular, and bipartisan policies uh, for years to come. Connor Semmelsberger, thanks so much for your time and your expertise. It is a blessing to us all. Appreciate it. And I hope that you will take away from this the importance of doing something about this. And again, I want to commend you to frcaction.org slash save hide. That's what you can do to contact your legislators about keeping the Hyde Amendment. And also, we, we discussed frc.org slash infrastructure. If you don't want the infrastructure bill to be all about gender identity, contact your legislators and tell them to keep infrastructure about infrastructure. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to being with you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.